we reframe the what do you want to be when you grow up as the question, well, what do you want to grow into next? Because if growing up means you lose your curiosity or you lose your life, you know, love of learning, then it's a terrible idea. Don't grow up. So one, when you reframe the question, you open up all these new possibilities. Like, oh, okay, it's about what I'm growing into. So it's about figuring out the next thing. And when I get to the next thing, then I'll have a bunch of experiences. And from there, new things will emerge. And then I will respond to those. So if you think about life as a design, I'm building new to the world things every year, two years, three years. I'm new to the world. I'm like a new iPhone. No one's ever seen me before. Now new possibilities will emerge because with these capabilities and these skills in this job, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of new things appear. Welcome to The Courageous Life, a podcast founded on the idea that taking risks, overcoming fears, and moving beyond the limits of our comfort zones are prerequisites for living meaningful and fulfilling lives. I'm your host, Joshua Steinfeld. And it's my mission to explore insights, practical strategies, and inspiring stories of everyday heroes that will empower more people to grow courage and awaken greatness. If you think about your life and your experience for just a moment, what are some of the most challenging questions that you faced? Perhaps it's, what do I want to be when I grow up? Or how can I find fulfilling work that also pays the bills? Or what comes next after I retire? Today's guest is Bill Burnett, and he co-created and co-teaches one of the most popular electives at Stanford, a class called Designing Your Life. Along with his colleague Dave Evans, Bill has taken a method that is centered on the principles taught in the product design program and the D School, which is the design school at Stanford, called design thinking. It's a process and a way of thinking about tough-to-solve problems. Questions like, what do I want to be when I grow up? The method presented in their class has been the subject of two PhD theses, and has demonstrated significant results in helping people design the life they want. The lessons in their class were turned into the book, Designing Your Life, which you can find anywhere, and has practical exercises for creating a life that is fulfilling and meaningful. Having spent my entire career doing coaching and training work, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's one of the most practical and useful guides I've found about answering some of life's biggest questions. I'm thrilled to be able to have Bill on the show. And today we dive into many topics that are related to life design. We get at the four different factors around life design, getting curious, because curiosity is the energy that drives you into your future, talking to people about what you're doing, prototyping your future, and telling your story along the way. We'll also talk about the importance of having a compass to guide you rather than just passively accepting other people's ideas for how you should live your life. Bill will walk us through some really interesting findings from neuroscience about what separates some of the most creative people in the world and what we can learn from them about overcoming fear. He'll also talk about practical ways to brainstorm to produce wildly creative ideas and open up new insights or possibilities. And another thing we'll get into a little bit is the importance of reframing dysfunctional beliefs. One of the things I've appreciated most about Bill and Dave's work is that they use evidence to dispel a lot of myths that are out there in the popular media, like that classic saying, go out and find your passion. Bill reminds us that there are findings showing that only 20% of people actually have any identifiable passion. And so perhaps finding your passion isn't the most realistic or effective approach for building a meaningful career. To give you a little bit more of a formal background about Bill, Bill is the executive director of the design program at Stanford. He directs the undergraduate and graduate program in design, both interdepartmental programs between the mechanical engineering department and the art department. He got his BS and MS in product design at Stanford and has worked professionally on a wide variety of projects ranging from award-winning Apple PowerBooks to the original Hasbro Star Wars action figures 
He holds a number of mechanical and design patents and design awards for a variety of products, including the first Slate computer. In addition to his duties at Stanford, he is on the board of VOZ, pronounced Voz, which is a socially responsible high fashion startup, and he also advises several internet startup companies. You can find out more about Bill, his teachings, and his books, as well as workshops, and even Designing Your Life facilitators and coaches at designingyour.life. As always, I've included links to references and resources that Bill and I might mention throughout the show, and you can find those at www.joshuasteinfeld.com forward slash podcast. All right, without any further ado, it is my pleasure to bring you this conversation with Bill Burnett. Well, Bill, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, really, really excited to have you on and uh, and explore this topic of designing your life more broadly. Um, I think first we always start, since it is the courageous life, just by asking a question about whether or not there was an adversity or a challenge that you may have faced. And it could be anywhere in your life. It could be early on, could be midlife, uh, but that really maybe set you on a different trajectory uh, or influenced the trajectory largely of what you're doing professionally, maybe today. Does anything like that come to mind for you? Well, yeah, there, there, there is actually one kind of seminal moment in, in early in my uh, college career, but it, it, it comes from this notion that there isn't really one perfect life and you're really not going to figure out the path, and that most of the time when we think we've got it figured out, if you actually look at it, uh, the data is pretty thin. So I was... Um, you know, I grew up uh, right outside of Boston uh, in Burlington, Massachusetts. Um, so I was sort of an East Coaster. And then when um, time came to go to college, you know, I was maybe going to go to Harvard or MIT. And um, uh, I was a gymnast at the time. I had been recruited to go be on the gymnastics team at Yale, mostly because it, that wasn't a very good team. <laughs> it was one I could get on. Anyway, so I was looking at these East Coast schools. And as a, at a whim, I just sort of sent an application off the night before it was due to Stanford. Literally just hand-wrote an essay, no editing, sent it off to Stanford. So the letters come in, and I get into Stanford. I'm like, ah, oh, this is awesome. Uh, and my, my sole criteria was it's as far away from my parents as I can get. I had done no research on the school. This was, you know, back in the 70s. Stanford was, you know, was famous, but it wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. So I get, on a, I get in an airplane. I fly to Stanford. They drive us down, you know, Palm Drive. It's very beautiful. Get to my dorm. And uh, I decide I'm a physics major. Now, two reasons, and again, this was, I was absolutely convinced I was a physics major for two reasons. One, my physics teacher liked me in high school, you know, and, and I see this all the time in, in office hours when I ask people, you know, why, why do you want to major in design or engineering? Oh, you know, I had this school, I had a teacher in school who liked me. So that, that's just, I mean, it's an interesting piece of data, but it's not useful. It's like, okay, a grown-up thought I was a nice kid, right? Yeah. Great. Um, a long way from being a physicist. Oh, and I had seen uh, a Nova special because this was, you know, in the 70s, Stanford had the linear accelerator, the two-mile linear accelerator. It was the biggest accelerator in the world at the time. And they were doing experiments and they were discovering new particles. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. And I, so I get to Stanford and they assigned me as my pre-major advisor because I hadn't declared yet, um, but I was thinking physics. So they assigned me Dr. Richard Taylor as my advisor, Dr. Richard Taylor, uh, got the Nobel Prize for discovering the quark out at the accelerator. And he's a great guy. Actually, he's not sort of a quiet, you know, introverted physicist. He's a big, tall guy, about 6'3", and um, very gregarious and fun. And he invites us to his house. And, he, you know, we're having dinner at his house. His wife uh, was also a very, very pleasant person. And I'm thinking, this is great. You know, and he's serving us wine, and we're freshmen. And, you know, this is in the days when faculty could do that. And we're meeting these great French physicists from CERN. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I got another grown-up who likes me. <laughs> <laughs> it was on TV. So of course I'm a physicist. Anyway, three quarters into this, um, I realized this is a complete disaster. One, I really, I'm, although I'm interested in the topic, I'm not interested in the way the classes are taught or the way the subject is, is done here uh, at, at any school, probably, but not at Stanford. And two, um, you know, the mathematics is pretty rough, and I'm not doing well in that. And I, and, I, and I asked Dr. Taylor, I said, you know, like, what's it like to be a physicist? And he's talking to me, and I realized it's a pretty solitary life. You sort of sit in a room all by yourself doing equations on a chalkboard, chalkboards in those days. And I visit Slack, and I just think these, these, these seem like very lonely people to me. 
So I have this sort of dark night of the soul where I realize, okay, you know, the only thing I wanted to be was a physicist and I'm not going to be a physicist. And it's the end of my freshman year and I don't know what to do. But I start reading the course catalog and trying to figure out, well, what else can I be? You know, I don't know. What else do I like? I like history. I like, I like a lot of things, you know, but I didn't have anything that organized my, quote, passion. Um, and, I'm, and I talk to my students now about this, like, don't look for a passion. That's not the right way to go for most people. So I come up with a great, great idea because you can declare your own major at Stanford. So I say, I know. Well, I kind of like the sciences, physics, but I've always, always been an artist. I was a painter and I, I draw and I paint and, um, and I write music. I'll be the first art and physics major. I'll just do a double major. And that'll make physics better because I'll have all my art friends and, and I'll still do the science. I go upstairs to the top of the engineering uh, corner in the, in the quad and I meet this wonderful woman named Kay Bradley who ran all of engineering at the time, and she sort of was everybody's mother figure. And I said, okay, I'm going to declare my own major. And she says, that's fantastic, but what's it going to be? I said, it's going to be art and physics, the first time ever. And she goes, no, actually, that's a thing called product design. You should go down and talk to this guy named Bob McKim. <laughs> I go, what? She goes, yeah, there's a major where we do art, physics and art and psychology and anthropology. It's really cool. You should talk to Bob. I think it would be a good fit. I go down to Bob McKim's office. We have a our first, our very first meeting, and he says, "Well, go take this class called ME One Hundred One Visual Thinking, and if you like it, maybe this is your major. Like, just and and you won't get in if, unless you're a major. So just lie." This is the first time I had met Bob, and I thought, "Oh, so the, my, my my maybe my advisor is telling me I should just lie to get into a class," which I did, and it worked. Um, it turns out he told everybody that I take the class, and anyway, the, and it's and it's fantastic. And so, I mean, the 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 story is people pick things for very thin reasons particularly when you're 18 or 19 or 20 and you're just sort of looking for anything, you know, that kind of gets you excited. And, um, and then, you know, I got very lucky. I, you know, went to a college I knew nothing about. Happened to have the only major in the country that combines the two possible things I might be interested in in a mag magical way. I fall into that major and then the rest is history. You know, so after that point, my career's been reasonably stable in terms of being a designer, although very nonlinear in going from startups to big companies to consulting, back to big companies, and then on to academics. So... You know, I'd still say there's been a lot of twists and turns and some failures and discoveries along the way. But the really big one was just recognizing that, you know, you are who you are, and it takes a little while to figure that out. And a lot of the reasons I see particularly college students making decisions, when you really kind of scratch it a little bit deeper, it's like, well, my mom and dad want me to, or all my friends are, or I, I met this professor and he you know, in office hours, and he was really kind of, you know, useful or helpful for, to me. Um, we do a class on, at Stanford called Designing the Professional, which is just for PhD students. And, you know, you talk to PhD students, you just assume they're pretty intentional, right? Well, a lot of them ended up, you know, been doing a PhD because, you know, I, I was looking for a summer job. I got a research position in this lab. The professor said, hey, you're pretty good at research. I thought, oh, cool. I'll get a PhD. And when another grown up that liked me, another grown up that liked me, yeah. And then when you get to the sort of the end of that, and by the time you're at the end of a PhD, many of these people are married, they maybe have kids, you know, they're in their you know, 29, 30, 31, 32. And it's hard to get a PhD in a lot of subjects. And in most subjects now, there's too many PhDs and not enough academic jobs. And so it's really quite a quandary. But although I would have thought that PhD students were pretty intentional at what they did, a lot of them just did the same, just repeated the same thing. I'm, the only thing I know how to be as a student, I found another grown up who likes me. <laughs> He's willing to fund my PhD. So I'm going to spend seven years, you know, researching the biology of newts or the, you know, infrastructure of the French Revolution in, you know, blah, blah, blah. So Dave and I talk about this in class, like the unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. But when you start examining things, you really got to think about what, like, well, where did this, where did this feeling come from? Where did this idea that I want to be something come from because there's a lot of voices in our head you know our parents our friends the expectation of society we have a, you know stanford's got a pretty big first gen population for a school like this i think it's about 20 percent of the students here their first generation to go to college and you know and and 70 percent of the students at stanford are on some kind of financial aid so it's you know hardly anybody pays list price here but there's a lot of students who are coming not just you know i want to go to stanford i'm gonna you know try to achieve in this this um, very high-performance place. But they also sort of feel like, and I'm coming with the weight of my family or the weight of my community on top of me because I've got to succeed because I'm the first one. 
It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. And, and part of the class and, and some of the book is really helping people sort out those voices and deciding what they want to accept as a reason for doing what they're doing and what they can sort of maybe push aside as somebody else's reason. So I think this is, this is really interesting. This, a lot of what you're saying relates to my experiences in college, which were these big questions about what do you want to be when you grow up, you know, that age-old question, and the pressures that you're talking about from you know, social, cultural norms, family norms, so on and so forth. Um, and, there's, and then when under that pressure, at least for me, looking outward to a lot of different pieces of advice of which direction should I go? Let me get some input. Let me get some advice, so on and so forth. And I think that can be valuable at times. Uh, but like you're saying, people may base career decisions on very thin data. Um, and so... And, and often data that's incorrect. You know, that's just, it's just some, something somebody told them, what we call dysfunctional beliefs. And often data that's incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Or some, or some adult that liked me or whatever. <laughs> um, so I'm curious if we, could talk a if we could outline a little bit of what are maybe the pieces of data that I should pay attention to or that might have a little more value from your experiences? Um, and what are the pieces of data that, or the bad advice, quote unquote, that maybe I should let go of or not pay as much attention to if I'm trying to answer this yeah. question? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, uh, embedded in every question is some kind of a you know value or belief system. The whole idea of like, hey, what do you want? What do you want to be when you grow up? Has two embedded ideas in it. That once you figure that out, it's a static thing. You, uh, now I know what I want to be. I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. And and then that's it. I'll just be that. The data says you're going to have at least three careers. You know, if you're anywhere in the 20s to 30s, you'll have at least three different careers, completely different careers. The data also says that what you majored in in college is not that relevant because 10 years out of school, only 20% of the people are doing anything that had to do with what they studied in college. So there's two, there's, there's two things right there. Like um, There is no singular growing up and now I'm done. That just isn't the way it works. And, you know, what you majored in college has to do with how you organized your college experience and maybe your first job or two. But it, it isn't really predictive of what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And the way we put it in class is, do you really want your 20-year-old telling your 45-year-old what he's going to do for a living? I mean, is that a good idea? Because <laughs> you don't know yet, right? You don't have enough information. So, you know, the stuff, the, 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 we reframe the what do you want to be when you grow up as the question, well, what do you want to grow into next? Because if growing up means you lose your curiosity or you lose your lifelong learning, you know, love of learning, then it's a terrible idea. Don't grow up. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, don't do that. Yeah. So one, when you, when, you, when you reframe the question, you open up all these new possibilities. Like, oh, okay, it's about what I'm growing into. So it's about figuring out the next thing. And when I get to the next thing, then I'll have a bunch of experiences. And from there, new things will emerge. And then, and then I will respond to those. So if you think about life as a design... I'm building new-to-the-world things every year, two years, three years. I'm new to the world. I'm like a new iPhone. No one's ever seen me before. Now new possibilities will emerge because with these capabilities and these skills in this job, all of a sudden a whole bunch of new things appear on my horizon. And if I stay curious and if I'm um, continuing to learn into my future – all sorts of cool stuff will happen. I mean, look, I, I, when I got out of school, engineers were, you know, had draftsmen and drawing boards and pencils and paper, and now none of that exists. Students that are graduating now could get a job in machine learning or AI. Ten years ago, those fields literally didn't exist. They existed in research, but they didn't exist in industry. And no, no matter what you want to do, whether you have a humanities degree or an engineering degree or something technical, the world will change and new things will emerge as opportunities. So... One, reframe the future as this kind of emergent, interesting design problem to get excited about that because that's more fun than trying to you know, take some pretty arbitrary data, match it up to something and say, okay, I think I want to be a lawyer, doctor, whatever. And then pay, pay attention, I guess, to, you know, to two things. Your lived experience, like that's why we say prototype. You, you prototype your future. You don't just say, all right, uh, I'm going to go all in on... You know, uh, I want to be a project manager in a, te in, a, in, a, in a food services company, and then eventually I want to run my own restaurant. How do you know? <laughs> How do you know? Right? But you could prototype all of those things, and you could do it with simply prototype interviews, information interviews with people. You can do prototype experiences. You can do a shadow day, a ride-along, a bunch of other things. So pay attention to your felt experience of something. 
and to the experiences you get by talking to people. And then um, prototype stuff so that you get a chance, what we call sneaking up on your future. If somebody doesn't isn't familiar with the language prototype, let's say they've never heard that before, how do you break that down? Yeah, um, it's basically just try stuff. You know, uh, when we when the first book came out, and and Dave and I are, as you can tell already, long talkers. We give long answers to questions. We were going to be on a morning show in Toronto, Canada, and they said you got a seven minute segment to talk about the book. We said great. We had a little thing prepped. About thirty seconds before we go on, the producer comes up to us and he says, "Okay, the last segment went long. You got three minutes." you got to tell Designing Your Life in Three Minutes. And Dave goes, we can't do Designing Your Life in Three Minutes. <laughs> and the guy says, then you're not going to be on. I'll, I'll skip your segment. He says, hold on a second. We still said, what is this thing really? Um, okay, it's um, get curious, because curiosity is the energy that you know, get, drives you into your future. Get curious, talk to people, because the world is about radical collaboration. Try stuff, i.e. little tiny experiments, call them prototypes, to see if this future might fit, and then tell your story. So get curious, get curious, talk to people, try stuff, tell your story. Telling your story is like, hey, I just had this experience and blah, 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 blah. And then someone else says, oh, well, you know, if you wanted to do that, you should try this. And it becomes this sort of virtuous cycle, right, where you're having experiences, talking to people about your experiences. The experiences can be just nothing more than a one-hour conversation with somebody you found on LinkedIn who you think is interesting. This, this idea of time travel, William Gibson said, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So someone is already doing the job you think you might be interested in. If you find them and talk to them for an hour, and all you're asking for, hey, tell me your story. What, what's the? How did you get into doing these, um, this, you know, this blog thing? And you know, where'd you, where'd that come from? And how do you like it? Um, everybody wants to tell their story, and that's a little piece of time travel. If I'm thinking about being a writer or thinking about maybe starting, you know, my own internet, you know, something. Talking to a bunch of people who've already done it will tell me about the real lived reality of it. So that's what a prototype is. It's just a little experiment, as simple as a conversation, as complicated as, um, hey, I bet, you know, I bet uh, producing this podcast or writing a blog is a real, you know, like doing 38 of these is really a lot of work. Can I help? You know, can I guest for a, a week for you? Can I do a couple, you know, can I take some burden off of you and do something for you that would be useful? And that gives me a chance to experience it without having to, you know, commit myself to something. Sure. And, and when, people, uh, when people come up to us at, at book signings, they're always kind. No one says, your book sucks, I want my money back. Uh, but they, they say, I liked your book. And I said, well, and I'm always curious. I said, like, well, what did you find useful? Because it's not just a you know self help book. It's got a bunch of stuff in it you're supposed to do. So what do you find useful? And they and typically I get two strong reactions. One is wow, this idea of reframing problems and getting rid of these bad ideas. Like I thought I was supposed to have a passion. Everybody had a passion. Then you tell me only twenty percent of the people actually have passions. And I was like, ah, oh, great. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me. So reframing, getting rid of bad ideas is a big one. And prototyping. This guy comes up at a book signing. I think um in Kansas City. And he goes, I got to tell you something. This prototyping thing is a really big deal. I said, yeah, I know. He said, no, no, you got to tell everybody because you can prototype anything. I'm pro I prototyped my wife's birthday party. And then we did a, another one and it was fantastic. I prototyped, you know, uh, stuff with my kids. I prototype everything now. You got to tell everybody. And I said, well, I think I did. It was in the book. <laughs> <laughs> the book is out there. <laughs> yeah, but he was so excited. You know, um, the notion that you don't have to risk everything and that the world will collaborate with you on little tiny experiments and that if you... If you get good at listening to yourself, we've all got voices in our heads. You know, I still, you know, my dad still thinks I should get a real job. This professor thing isn't a real job. And, you know, everybody's got expectations, either from their friends, their family, their community, whatever. And so sometimes it's hard to listen to ourselves. You know, and, and really when people say, I don't have an, I can't identify a passion, it's not that there's something wrong. It's just that they haven't actually cleared out all those other voices yet. And they're not listening to themselves you know, their rational selves and their emotional selves. Like, does this feel good? Does it feel right? Um, and so when you don't have any, any, you know, compass to guide you, you just take on other people's ideas. Yeah. Well, maybe everybody should be a programmer because everybody tells me you can make a lot of money as a programmer. I have a lot of students who end up, you know, stopping, doing, dropping out of design, doing CS for a while. And then they come back and they go, that really sucks. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, you tried it, you know, it's just maybe it's not your thing, right? Yeah. I love 
love that. I love the bias toward action. I had a professor in graduate school who you're probably really familiar with, Angela Duckworth. Yeah. And she was a big proponent of moving away from a lot of inward reflection to figure out what you're passionate about and get out there in the world and experiment and try things out. That was a, a big... Well, and she knows from, from the research that passion most likely occurs after you've worked hard at something and then you realize, wait, well, maybe this is, you know, there's there's sort of jobs, careers, and callings. You know, this is this is just a job. I'm just getting making it for, doing it for money. Hey, this is a career. I, I want to get better at this and then move to the next level and the next level. I really want to master this thing. That's more like a career. And some of us end up in a calling where you realize, oh, this is this is good work that I would do even if I weren't getting paid, or you know, or I, I would just do this work because it's important. Uh, important because I see a reaction in the world, like I'm fixing stuff or I'm helping people, uh, and important because it feels right to me. David Kelly has a great quote in his book on creative confidence where he was talking to different people about creativity and he and he was talking to uh, he happens to know that the interpreter for the Dalai Lama, a guy named Jumpa. He's been on the show actually. Uh, yeah, Jumpa on the show. And David asked him, "What's the what's the Tibetan word for creative or creativity?" And he said, "We don't we don't really have a word for that. The closest word I could think of was natural. We'd say that person's being natural." Isn't that wonderful? Like, of course, Everyone is creative. You're just expressing your natural self. You're not doing something special, right? And so we all have the ability to be creative. And when I talk to people and when I see people doing their odyssey plans and stuff, which is the, you know, there's three versions of you, not one. Inevitably, everybody says, I wish my job was a little more creative. Or I wish I had more expression in my, you know, more creative expression in my life. And then we break that down and say, well, you know, that doesn't have to come just from a job. There's lots of ways to be creative in the world. Um, and, and it is kind of a human need to be expressive. And so we have a new book coming out and one of the new tools is what we call the maker mix. Everybody's a maker. So what you make, but you got to measure the right things. When the, in the commercial world, what you make is money. In the nonprofit world, what you make is impact, right? I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this to get kids into an after-school program so they play basketball instead of getting into gangs. But if you want to be in the world of, of creativity, what you, what you make is expression. I get paid when... I get a chance to perform my poem at an open mic night or do my painting and show it to my friends. And so everybody can balance those three things. It's not just money because it's like everybody's, you know, we, we like to, the other ones blow up false dichotomies, work-life balance. Well, work-life balance or money versus meaning. Do I work for money or do I work for meaning? It's like whenever you make things a, a binary, uh, your brain automatically goes into a zero-sum game analysis, which is the way the brain works. And then it's like, okay, I can have lots of money and no meaning. Have uh, lots of work and no life, or I can have what's what's the best you can have? Crappy life, crappy work, fifty fifty, right? I mean, never let things be a, uh, a dichotomy because it's not the way the world works. It's really not the way your life works. We reframe the work life balance as work love health play, and we reframe the money versus meaning problem as meaning as as a you know money uh, impact and expression. And once it's three things or four things, it opens up. A big space for design. So I love this. And, and I, one thing I'd like to explore with you is we've been talking a lot about creativity and reframing and challenging some dysfunctional beliefs and things like this. And if we could talk a little bit about uncertainty and fear that might show up in students and, and people that you worked with. For me, when I was in college, answering these big questions and afterwards sometimes was scary, brought uncertainty, I don't know what I'm going to do, brought pressure, so on and so forth, some of the things we've been talking about. I'm curious about how you approach the topic of fear or uncertainty with students. So a student walks into your office and they're you know, dealing with some of this doubt, uncertainty, fear, dysfunctional beliefs, whatever they are. How is it that you create conditions where they can be more creative or be more courageous or things like that? And I want to offer briefly just a, a quote by an author, James Stevens, who says, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. And I don't know what you make of that, but I thought I'd just throw that in the mix. No, that, that, that's a good quote. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just the students. We, we, I'm doing workshops with mid-career people, you know, who are in their 30s and 40s. And either they like the career, but they'd like to double down and go faster, or they, they're looking for a pivot. This isn't exactly what I want to do anymore. I want something new. And we're also starting to work with um, folks that are, um, you know, approaching retirement and haven't really thought about designing anything in a while because the job worked or whatever they were doing was fine, but now they're no longer going to be that person with that role. 
and they don't know what to do. So fear comes up at that point. Fear comes up when you're trying to pivot or do something new. Fear comes up when you're in school and you're trying to pick something to organize, you know, what college is about, your major and, and all the other stuff you want to do. And at a very fundamental level, if we're just in a design class and I'm trying to teach people how to brainstorm, for instance, well, brainstorming has a couple of rules. One rule is no criticism. Um, and the no criticism rule is that like it's to create a safe place to have lots of crazy ideas. If I'm having crazy ideas and you're going, that's stupid, Bill, then I'm, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. So most people don't say that's crazy. You know, it's a dumb idea. But, they, um, but, but internally they say it to themselves. Oh, I can't say that idea. It's too weird or I can't, I can't, you know, can't do it. Um, so looking into this a little bit, you know, and I like, I like to think, you know, it's, well, at Stanford, we're, we're research-based. I, none of the stuff that we teach in class is just made up. Like, oh, Bill and Dave think this is a dysfunctional belief or something. We Came up we with ha- us on the train. Yeah, we just were thinking about it. So this, is, this is a research university. We have to quote research um, to do stuff. And there's been a little bit of original research on the class as well. And when I say research, I mean truly, you know, peer-reviewed control versus, you know, experiment versus, um, you know, a, a tightly defined piece of research. When you look at people who uh, rate highly creative on a number of different psychometric tests, and only 3 to 5% of the population would rate very highly creative, and we put them in brain scanners, we notice three things about their brain that are different than what we'll call neuronormals. One, they, see, they have more circuits for color, and they see colors more vividly. Two, they have more circuits for textures and feelings. They feel, they feel and see more vividly than a neuronormal, which is probably why many high creatives end up in the arts, because they just have this, this very visual and tactile response to the world, which they want to express. But the one that, the piece of re- part of that research that I use a lot is they also have what's called a low fear response to novelty. When you show them something in a scanner they've never seen before, the normal reaction would be, whoa, what's that? You know, like back away, fight, flight, or freeze, you know, adrenaline and the, 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 the adrenaline starts to flow, your amygdala fires up because, you know, walking through the jungle, something pops out at you, you should go, whoa, what's that, right? That would be a normal response. They have, they have low or no fear response to novelty. So, you know, that, that also means if you know people who are super, super highly creative, they're actually a little awkward in society because, you know, like the normal thing is we're no longer threatened by tigers in the jungle. But, you know, when you were 10 and you had Thanksgiving and, and, you know, your grandmother came to Thanksgiving and you said something like, wow, grandma, you got so fat since the last time I saw you. Everybody went, shh, 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 don't say that, don't say that. So our, our society prevents, you know, gives us all these fear responses to saying anything unusual or observing anything unusual or being un- acting unusually. So typically by the end of middle school or high school, your creativity has been completely suppressed by social norms. If you don't have that fear response, like you go, but grandma is fat. What's the big deal? <laughs> and, you know, and my boss is stupid and he sh- I should just tell him. And because these are just like the way I see the world. And, and uh, wow, look at all these amazing colors over here. Guys, you're not paying attention. So, you know, high creatives don't actually, they're not very good in the work world and they're not very good in the, in the normal world. Um, and, and that's probably one of the reasons there's not that many of them in, in our social circles. Um, they were typically the shamans or the priests in, in traditional cultures and very useful to help the, you know, organize, you know, what the tribe believes. Um, but, um, not that useful, you know, nowadays, except when we need a crazy new idea out of the lab or a really brilliant idea, you know, to solve this user problem. And so the cool part about low fear response is I can train that. I can teach you how to turn off fear response. We just do it. Uh, Albert Bandura did this with phobias. It's the stuff in Creative Confidence, David's books. It's you know called Guided Mastery, small little steps where you face your fear, overcome it. We do a little congratulations, then we do it again, we do it again in very small increments. And eventually you can brainstorm you know, as well as the most, as the well as the most creative person, you can you can have ideas whenever you need to that are really broad and non non uh, non censored um, and and innovative. Can we dig into that exposure a little bit? So let's say I'm your student and I'm coming to you and I'm going, Bill, I'm a, you know I have this fear or whatever, and we can think of whatever example that comes to mind, and you say, okay, let's. You know, walk me through maybe the process of that if people are curious about that. Well, particularly if, we're, if you're a designer, I'm going to say, all right, well, let's, let's, start with, um, let's start with something really simple. I'm going to put two ideas on the board. I want you to walk over there. I want you to write, you know, so the, the prompt is come up with a new way to serve lunch. 
go over there and write two ideas about how to serve lunch, new ways to serve lunch. And then over here, you know, there's uh, new ways to, um, you know, charge electric vehicles. So put that over there. And then I'm just going to have you do that. And then I'm going to talk to you about the ideas. And we're going to talk about how, how actually innovative or unique they are. And then I'm going to ask you, did you have an idea that you just thought was too weird to put up there? Yeah, but I didn't put it up. Okay, what, what is it? And we're just going to do that one-on-one because it's much safer because I'm just a guide. I'm a, I'm a guide and a mentor. Okay, then we're going to, you know, then we'll escalate to, we'll do, it, we'll do it in a small group. Now there's a little social pressure. Now there's other people in the room, and, but they're trained to make this a safe place to have crazy ideas too. Um, so they're going to model having the crazy ideas, and I'm going to say, just act like them. Uh, in, in our work, I will say, you know, creativity is just a series of behaviors. If you act like a creative person, literally behave like a creative person, I won't be able to tell you from a real one, right? You'll, you'll, be, you'll look just like the real one. Uh, and in fact, once, you know, it's that thing where um, the research where if you just walk around smiling, you will experience your day as happier. We, 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 we all have this model that, you know, if I'm happy, I'll smile. Smile is the result of happiness. But it turns out it works the other way around if, as well. If you smile a lot, you will be happier. You will discover that you're happier that day. So uh, if you act like, a, you know, act like a creative person, and, and I, you know, I break it, there's, there's five moves you can do in a brainstorm. You can be the stoker, the person who just goes, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. You can be the build off the idea of others person. You can be the yes and person. You can be the person who makes offers. What if it worked like this? What if it worked like that? So we have a whole methodology for how to teach you to be the creative person. That plus working on some of the other elements of design, inevitably you start to say, hey, wait a minute, I am actually having better ideas. I'm not noticing this fear response come up. Um, it's a little tricky because it's the absence of something that we're training, right? Not the, not the you know, like if, it's, if it was a, a muscle, you'd go, well, the muscle's getting bigger. In this case, that part of your brain is just getting quieter and it's not responding inappropriately uh, to thinking that these ideas are threats. The ideas aren't threats. They're not really jungles. We're not in the jungle. There's no lions, right? There's not a real tiger. Yeah. yeah, there's no real tigers. But there's a lot of tigers in our head that are going to you know, jump up and kill us. So the, the, the big aha comes when you, know, when you realize, okay, so the fear response to novelty is, oh, my God, what's that? And the creative response to novelty, curiosity is, oh, what's that, right? And then engaging with that and even engaging with the fear of that is, is where you see the flip. And people start to realize, oh, wait a minute. The fear response is not functional. It's not, it's not useful. What's more useful is curiosity. If I were to just, just for the period of time when I'm trying to be more innovative or more creative or solve this problem, if I had access to these other ideas, that would be useful. I get access by dropping all the other programming that's, that's in there. Not, that's not, it's not trivial. It's, it's probably a 10,000-hour problem. It takes about 100 hours to just even get decent at, at brainstorming and about 1,000 hours to become sort of what I would call a journeyman brainstormer. You know, I started this program in the 70s when dinosaurs roamed White Plaza. So, so I've been doing this for at least 10,000 hours. Um, but I can get into that frictionless state of just, just, you know, idea association and stuff. And, and that's not the only part. Then you still have to take those crazy ideas and turn them into something. And that's another form of, of creativity is how do we take a, a promising but impossible idea and turn it into something that's actually actionable or useful or, or can be made. And then, you know, the, and that's tightly coupled with, uh, well, once we've had a bunch of ideas, now we've got to build a lot of stuff. David Kelly will say, we build to think. In design, we don't build to prove our ideas right. That, we do that sometimes at the end. But in the beginning, we just build lots of stuff so that we can try stuff and show it to people and have them try stuff. And then we can observe actual behaviors with these things that have never existed before. And that, that gives us a sense of where you know, maybe the new, new design or new idea would, would really land with people. But even showing someone a crazy prototype takes some, some courage. So that the quote about, about courage, I've always, I've always held this, and I don't know where I got it, but I think it was from some uh, military person. They said, courage isn't the lack of fear. Courage is action in the face of fear. When you talk to people who want a Purple Heart or a medal for courage, it wasn't like, yeah, the machine gun was shooting at everybody, and then I ran, and I ran up to the thing, and I managed to dodge the bullets, and I threw a hand grenade in, and, and you know, I rescued the whole patrol. And they go, were you afraid? They go, yeah, I was terrified. <laughs> and they say, well, why'd you do it? Said, well, somebody had to do it. You know, 
Somebody had to do it. So it's literally something in the human mind or the human spirit, which, you, which is action in the face of fear. And that's, that's the bias to action you know, idea in design thinking. Um, sometimes it's just fake it till you make it. Like, you know, act like a creative person and uh, no one will know that inside you're saying, I'm not creative, I'm not creative. But, you know, one of the things I think we do in our classes is we model those behaviors so that people will say, oh, if the professor's doing it, I can do it too. Uh, we, we, we create spaces where those behaviors are encouraged and, and rewarded. I mean, I have a couple of tools, like I can give grades and I can give, you know, rewards to people to try to act differently. But it's also, um, it's also interesting because a lot, of, you know, a lot of students end up in universities because they were good at school. And mostly being good at school is getting the answer that matches the one in the back of the book. So our first class, the class that Bob McKim told me to take in 1975, uh, I mean 76, what is called ME 101 Visual Thinking. Same class. Updated, but basically the same philosophy. And I, I used to teach 101, and one of my favorite projects was, um, you know, and this is, this is students who are, they think they want to be some kind of technical person. They're not sure they want to be a designer or a chemical engineer or whatever, maybe it's CS or something. Or maybe they're in humanities and they just think it's a fun class. And so one of my favorite assignments is, with nothing but the energy of a falling golf ball and this handful of random materials, illustrate the American dream. And I hand out the assignment. I say, okay, uh, if you have any questions, just see me after class. And everybody shows up and they go, what the what the hell? Like, uh, what do you mean? Illustrate the American dream? Well, what does the American dream mean to you? I don't know. Well, you're gonna have to figure that out because it's a critical design constraint. Um, but but that's not like a thing. It's not like a like if you said make the golf ball, you know, shoot this thing six feet. I could do that. But how do I solve this problem? And I said I don't know. And and unlike all the other problems, like in a math class, of course the professor knows how to do the problem. He can. He wrote the book, right? He can solve it. He he put the answer in the back. I go, I could solve this problem, and I know of thousands of really good solutions to this problem. The bad news is I know millions of really boring solutions to this problem. So you're going to have to, one, figure out what the problem is you're working on. Two, frame that for yourself so that you know how to start solving it. And then the only way I know to actually solve it is to build a lot of things that aren't your solution to get to the thing that you think you know, really captures it. So it's going to be both technical and emotional, and it's really about problem finding. And... At the end of that class, about two-thirds of... This is my gateway drug into the design program, by the way. Two-thirds of the students are like, this is amazing. I never really thought about problems this way before. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And about one-third of the students want to go to the dean and say, this is unfair. It was arbitrary. I have no idea what this... You know, He couldn't tell us what the solutions were, so how were we supposed to know? Um, I don't like being graded this way you know, because it's just too uncomfortable to deal with what I would consider is, it's a mock-up, but it's a mock-up of a real-world problem. In the real world, even in engineering, and I did a lot of engineering in my career, nobody says, here's the problem, here are all the forces, just figure out the equation and tell me the answer. They go, hey, um, I was working on the very first uh, notebook computers, the first power books at Apple. Um, hey, when we drop these things, this, the whole screen explodes and, and shatters into a million pieces. Figure out why. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, geez, that's a hard problem. Like, first we got to frame what is even the test that simulates reality. Then we have to figure out what actually was going on. And, you know, so even engineering problems in the real world are unconstrained and, 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 and the data that you get is highly biased and you have to really figure out what the problem is. So I love, I love classes like that that really stretch the students' minds because it does push them into this place of fear. Right, and in, in, in a really tangible way. Like, I want to get a good grade. Like, who cares, frankly? But I want to get a good grade because that's, I've been playing the game. That's how I got here. I didn't get to Stanford because I didn't care about grades. And I want to get a good grade in this class. And you just gave me a problem for which I do not understand even the, you know, the structure of the problem, much less how to get an A. And, and I will have students come in and say, how do I get an A in this assignment? And I'll say, that's the one question that really pisses me off. Never ask that question again. I'm generally kind of nice in office hours. But that one, I just say, go away. Come back when you have a better question. That's the wrong question. And they're, they're stunned. <laughs> I feel like, and, and I could be wrong about this, but I, at least for me, I've asked that question about my life. Yeah, how do I get an A? In general. How do I get yeah. an A in life? And it seems like what How's you're... How's it going? <laughs> I had to let go of that question. It's the wrong question. That's <laughs> the wrong question. Um, there was a quote in your book, and it was something like, um, life is a, you know, life is not, about outcome, it's about process. 
Yeah. And if you get that, then you kind of get everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things you asked, you know, you asked people at, at book signings, what's most valuable about the book? Because there's so much in there. One of the things that was most valuable to me was the idea of wayfinding. And just this idea that, you know, sometimes in life getting attached to what I want to be when I grow up, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, um, or having this outcome in my mind, if I get too attached to that, hanging on to that, um, it's just, it's kind of the, it's kind of the wrong framing almost. Yeah. And, and looking at it more as, um, am I on the right track? Like establishing a compass and, and am I finding the ways? Could you talk a little bit about wayfinding? And, and how that kind of applies. Well, and, and, and look, you know, again, um, Dave and I sometimes get the reputation of the anti-passion guys. And, and if, so if the data from Bill Damon's lab, the Center for the Study of Adolescence, is true, only 20% of the people have any identifiable passion. So for 80% of the people, it's the wrong question. Now, if when you were 9 or 10, you really, really wanted to be a ballerina or you really, really wanted to be an astronaut, and somehow or other, that, there was a true line in that, that experience for you and everything you did to get there continued to reinforce that that was right awesome you know go for it you're one of the lucky 20 percent you know you're lucky two out of ten but more often than not the want to be a doctor want to be a ballerina want to be an astronaut is just a sort of our proxy for it feels better to have something to hold on to and and i keep getting data that i'd be a lousy doctor i'd be a lousy ballerina i'd be a lousy you know astronaut but i i don't listen i just keep pushing right and then i find myself literally i've, I've had People, students say, I find myself in med school realizing this was the biggest mistake I ever made. Even after working so hard to get that to that, you know, fairly extraordinary accomplishment. So, it, you got to be, you got to be careful. Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't have something that pulls you forward, but um, embedded in all these questions, can I get an A? What's the meaning of life? Da, 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 is some notion of a singularity. Like if I could just figure it out, and it will stay the same for the next 60, 70 years of my existence on this planet, if I could just figure it out, everything would be okay. And there's no evidence that that's actually how life works. It works more of a, it's going to be a series of okays, or maybe a series of even wonderfuls. Um, but they'll all be different and for different reasons. And, and that's actually not a bad thing because you're going to grow and mature and what you are interested in doing is going to change. Um, and so uh, hopefully you have that kind of richness of experience. And that's why wayfinding is different than navigation. So, now, you know, we all have navigation in our pocket now. I want to get to Fremont or I want to get to the city. I punch in the address. I know where I'm going. And all we're doing uh, with the GPS system is maximizing you know, or minimizing the amount of time it takes to get there. And even now you can overlay traffic and all sorts of other stuff. And so you can give me the optimum path from a to B, because I know where B is. Okay, if I don't know where B is, trying to use a navigation scheme, arbitrarily fixing doctor, lawyer, ballerina as my endpoint, and then trying to get there could work, but it's gonna, I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna miss out on a lot of data in that journey that might you know, be more important than just picking an arbitrarily, arbitrary location. So wayfinding when you don't, I mean, one of our professors, Larry Leifer, has a great analogy. Wayfinding is like hunting. So if you're a, and he studied caribou hunters in Canada. So if you're going to go on a caribou hunt, you don't know where, I mean, like the, the caribou don't show up as points on your GPS map and you just go to the caribou and shoot it, right? Um, caribous are not wearing trackers. <laughs> that would be, that would be bad for them evolutionarily. So what hunters do is they go out to some place where they start, and then they do wayfinding. They look for a track, they look for a sign, they look for something. If they don't have one of that, they, they go to the next point where they feel like, you know, statistically or just historically, we've found some, some signs here. They find a little track or a footprint or they find some poop or something. And, you know, through a, a, a pattern of some deduction and some, well, what, what, uh, logicians call abductive reasoning, kind of imagining where this might lead something to be. They wander around, and it looks kind of like a wander, but it's a very, you know, from each point where they assess where they're at, they make a new judgment about where the caribou might be. When they eventually find the caribou then, and are successful in hunting, then they navigate home. They know, where, they know where they are, and they know exactly where home is. So there's a wayfinding phase to find the thing you want capture it and then from there you can navigate you know to to the next thing but eventually you're back hunting again you're looking for the unknown the unknown thing or the thing where you don't and you don't know where it is so there's a sign over the loft that we put in the book you are here and we put that over the, the lofts are design studio for grad students and you know we just say design starts from here 
you know, we're, we're human-centered designers, so, you know, talk to the humans who are in, in, the, in the market or the, you know, you're just, talk to the people you're designing for and find out what, they, what they're doing and what, they, what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Um, from that, we can make some guesses about what they might need, then we'll produce some prototypes or artifacts or questions, and we'll let them find those things, and then we'll see what they do, and then we'll do it again, and we'll do it again, and eventually we will have used this wayfinding process to discover the new product or service, or my next career, or my next job, or my partner for life, or any of the things that are important. And it comes from having an openness, which is also a curiosity. And it comes from having a, a sense of what you want, but, but um, what is it, um, a, a, a tight, a tight conviction loosely held. There's an expression, something a tight conviction loosely held, which I love. It's like, I really know what I value. In a job, I value, you know, the community of workers. I value, you know, learning. I value a boss that, you know, uh, appreciates my work. Um, but it's loosely held, whether that's in a big company, a small company, a startup, uh, whatever. Um, and, you know, we have this idea of latent wonderfulness. If there's a 20% chance of something in this experience being interesting, just go for it. Because we tend to screen stuff out from our fears and from our biases too early. Um, so wayfinding gives you the opportunity to discover hey, I thought I was on a caribou hunt. Turns out we found these bison. They're twice as tasty and don't run as fast, so they're easier to catch. <laughs> Let's eat bison this week, you know? And I'm not a hunter, so, and I'm kind of a, don't like hunting, but that's, a, that's an analogy. Or, or it's like, you know, uh, uh, I picked a college for a dumb reason and it turned out to be a great thing. But it turned out to be a great thing because then when I got there, I said, hey, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. What do I really need? Well, I need some more expression in my life. I need some, some art or something. Um, sitting in a room doing math all day is not going to be you know, who I am. I knew that much about myself. And then going on a voyage to discover, is there anything out there in the world like this? Putting my intentionality out there. So I got curious. I talked to people. I tried stuff. I tried the, the first class. I came back and said, that's amazing. And I've been telling that story for you know, 40 years. I love that. And I think that that comes back to the point, this idea that if we fall into a career or a job or something and we recognize, I actually don't really like a lot of aspects of this, that we don't have to move into then this kind of black and white or binary sort of thinking of now I just need to leave this entirely and move into something totally different. Although that could be an option, sure. But there is an opportunity as well to kind of design within that career, redesign it. Um, find things I love, pay attention to what's around. Is that, yeah, is that a piece of this? If you're a little bit you know, aware of what you like and don't like, you didn't, you didn't end up in something completely randomly. You picked something that had some aspects of things that you thought might be interesting or useful to you. And um, you know, we, uh, this, the second book, which comes out in February, is about, it's called Designing Your Work Life because we wanted to really drill into this issue of work and the future of work and where that's going and what happens when the robots and AI come and all that stuff. But um, in talking to lots of people, it turns out, you know, our, our method for finding a job is, well, you know, activate your social network, find out where the cool jobs are. 80% of the jobs aren't listed, so you're just going to have to find them in conversations and, you know, and then, and then do the information interviews and then, get the, and then get the jobs. In fact, sometimes jobs that are just created just for you because you asked, right? Well, where's your biggest social network? Where you work. <laughs> What's the most likely place for you to get a conversation going about, you know, I'm in this uh, development role, but I really think marketing might be more interesting because, because it's more creative, or I'm really in this marketing role, but I'm really tired of just, you know, selling stuff, and I'm, I'm looking for something that's more quantitative, you know, that can be a little more, um, uh, use some of my, my um, uh, analytical skills. Well, all those jobs exist in your organization somewhere. You have some social and political capital if you've been a reasonably good employee. Um, so one of, as I can say, one of our, our chapters is called Don't Resign, Redesign. And there's sort of four strategies for redesigning your job. And if you do one of those four strategies or you work on a couple of those four strategies and it turns out the best fit is outside your organization, awesome. 
You know, you have something like a 70% better chance of finding a job when you have one than when you don't. So one, don't just quit your job. Even Well, if your job is absolutely horrible or you're being discriminated against or it's sexist or racist or any, you know, toxic in any way, you probably should leave because you just got to, you know, save your soul and your, and your dignity. But most jobs aren't that bad. Although 68% of American workers, according to the Gallup poll, um, that they do every year. 68% of American workers say they're disengaged or actively disengaged in their job. So one of the reasons we tackled this subject was 70% of the people don't like their jobs. That's terrible. I mean, that's really terrible. Yeah. And they have the power to change it if they start thinking differently, thinking like a designer, thinking about how to how to um, get what they need by designing it into the into the role they've got or redesigning the role they've got or moving from one place to another in an organization. And so I think it's it's... The, the conclusion, one of the conclusions of the new books is we have, more, we have more power than we think we have. You know, people say people don't quit companies, they quit bosses. So, you know, you, you're unhappy and your boss is n- not meeting your needs or is actively grumpy or mean to you, whatever. And so you quit. But that's like one relationship inside a matrix of hundreds of relationships inside an organization. You know, I left Apple in 97, 98. I had a wonderful time at Apple. I really enjoyed myself. Just outgrew the job, wanted to do something else. Um, and, and I'm going back to have, you know, uh, coffee on Friday with uh, all my friends from Apple. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't leave that network of friendships. Uh, and many of those people have gone into other companies and other things, and that's where lots of, you know, other opportunities arise. So, you know, once you enter the world of work, you're building this network of relationships. And so, you know, like your boss, eh, he's going to quit anyway. He's a jerk. Or she, she's grumpy because, you know, she's having a bad life. Um, very few people actually ask their boss, you know, why are you being such a, a, a grump? Or why, why, you know, what about what I'm doing really seems to bug you? Because you're micromanaging the hell out of me and I don't like it. <laughs> um, and then, and, and if, you actually, if you actually have the courage to ask that question, you will often discover it has nothing to do with you. He doesn't like his boss either. <laughs> He's just modeling the behavior of all the people who he works for. And both of you don't like the way this is going. And you can cut a deal. Like the, how, about, how about we just decide that this abusive behavior stops you know, at this level or something like that. So I think people have more, more autonomy than they, they think they have in a lot of cases. And even, you know, we, we've got examples in the book, but, you know, fast food workers at a McDonald's or a, or a, a Wendy's, um, you know, folks working on a production line in a union. We all have the ability to make our experience of the day a little bit better. And humans have these intrinsic motivations to learn mastery, to learn how to work in, you know, groups of people, to, to work autonomously. And um, there's lots of evidence that if you just take on the responsibility of making your work better, you can change your experience of it. Bill, we're just about out of time. One kind of last offering or question would be around if I'm out there and I'm digging what you're saying and really enjoying this conversation um, and maybe I'm feeling a little bit of fear in my life or uncertainty or whatever it is, could you offer a final sort of invitation for people if they want to live a more courageous or maybe creative life or, or um, have that sort of experience at work, yeah. what would you invite people to do? Well, we have, a, we have a, the sort of, you know, the mantra in the first book was, you know, reframes and, and, you know, prototyping. And the mantra in the second book is set the bar really low. <laughs> set the bar low. If you study behavior, the psychology of behavior change, most behavior change fails because people just try to do something that's just too hard. It's too big. And what happens is their motivation flags. So for instance, if you're a you know, couch potato, but on January 1, your New Year's resolution is, I'm going to run a marathon this year. This year, I'm running a marathon. Yeah, I'm going to do it. All right. Well, that's, that might be an inspirational moment, but the next week, you know, I'm looking at your phone. You're not even doing 5,000 steps. You're not, you know, we're not even at 10,000 steps. We're not even at a mile. And so the, what happens is nothing you can do between where you're at and running a marathon feels like it's progress towards that very big goal. So you eventually abandon it. You know, 30, 30 days, or 60 days after New Year's, almost 90% of New Year's resolutions have failed. Now, if you, instead, if you, you know, if you, if you actually got on some of these, you know, websites that's like how to run a marathon, they would say, all right, this is a 26-week program. And in the first week, you get a high five and a big accomplishment, you know, sticker. 
for 5,000 steps. Do that for two weeks in a row. Now let's do 7,500. 7, now let's do 10,000. If you can break any big problem into very small increments, um, you have a much higher chance of, of actually accomplishing it. So one, set the bar low. And two, get a buddy. Because if, and this is a design team in our, in our language, but in, in the language of you know, psychology, it's accountability. If I say, hey, you know, um, I'm going to run, I'm going to do 10,000 steps on average this week every day. And here's my phone tracker and I'll send you the data. If I make myself accountable to you and all you got to do is agree that on Monday, you're going to call me up or send me a text saying, hey, Bill, how's it going? No guilt trip. No, it's just like, how's it going? You know, I'm going to check in. The likelihood that I will actually accomplish my goal is something like double, you know, two or three times higher. So. You can have a big goal, but break it into really small, actionable, doable, set the bar low steps and make somebody, and don't put the burden on a partner or somebody else, make a friend or somebody else um, hold you accountable. If, if, it's, you know, if you make your partner, your wife, your, your husband, your, your partner, whatever, accountable, then it's going to come with, well, did you do that like you said you would? And that's a whole other thing. That's not accountability. That's just... Um, evening scores or something. So, so pick, a, pick a friend, set the bar really low, keep the, the big motivational thing in the back of your head. But, but literally this week is, you know, it's a high five and an extra scoop of ice cream if we get to 10,000 steps. And that will work because the data on, on behavior change is, you know, if you have, if you have small incremental steps, this is guided mastery again from, from Bandura's thing on phobias or from the work on... Um, on just you know, goal accomplishment and behavior change. It takes, the psychologists say, it takes about eight weeks to establish a new behavior or to break an old, an old bad behavior. So, you know, it's going to take two months. Take your time. And um, absolutely celebrate small successes, whatever your celebration is, an extra scoop of ice cream, uh, you know, go, get, go to the movies, buy yourself a, you know, a, a nice T-shirt. But make it small, make it regular, celebrate success. Assume that you will fail 30% of the time. It's just failed to hit the goal 30% of the time. But 70% or 80% you know, success is huge. So don't hold yourself to perfection. That's the other way people fail. Shoot for a 70% accomplishment, super small goals uh, around a big objective. And you'd be, you know, you'd be surprised. And the other thing, because you're, you're sort of wayfinding into what's it going to be to run a marathon. You may never run a marathon. You may decide to walk half marathons and that's good enough. But the overall goal was, am I more in touch with my body? Do I feel healthier? Do I have more energy during the day? And the answer to all those questions is going to be yes. And now that I'm more in my body and I'm feeling what it's like to feel healthier and not just sit on the couch all day, um, maybe instead of marathons, I choose yoga. Or maybe instead of marathons, I choose, you know, uh, ultra marathons. I'm a hundred mile runner, you know. I've got a friend I got a, f- a friend, a design friend of mine, who was, um, you know, smoked and drank more than anybody else. We used to call him the Keith Richards of, of design. Um, uh, he's also British. Um, and in his 50s, he decided to give up smoking and drinking and start running. And he now runs these 100, 150-mile, you know, century runs, uh, uh, you know, all crazy places. Uh, he uh, had a heart attack uh, on, the, on the trail one day, came back, got a triple bypass and and asked the doctor, when can I start running again? They said, ah, you know, don't, don't do that. Um, so he, you know, tra- did a little bit of training and about three months after the heart attack decided he would run a century race. But just to make it a little more exciting, he'd do it in Nepal, you know, starting at 10,000 feet and up. Um, so you never know. Sometimes you find something that it's kind of your jam. But set the bar low and, and you're more than likely to accomplish what you want. I love that. Bill, it's been such a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, what you're doing, the new book, where can they do that? Um, you know, we can go, you can go to our website, which is designingyour.life, www.designingyour.life, um, and we'll announce the new book and some other things there in a little while. And that's where you can also find our, our you know, blogs and places where we've been and some videos and stuff. And also, um, uh, we've trained about 110 coaches who coach people on these ideas of... Uh, you know, setting the bar low and accomplishing things with a designer's mindset. So if you're looking for a kind of a personal coach, like a, like a trainer, um, there's a hundred and some of them up on the website. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Courageous Life. 
I'd like to extend special thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Matt Donner, for all of the incredible behind-the-scenes work he does to make this show sound great. He's also responsible for composing the original music that you hear at the beginning and the end of every episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show and conversation, please do share it with friends, because I believe that courage is contagious. And while you're at it, if you happen to be on iTunes, make sure you click the subscribe button, or if you feel so compelled, leave a positive review. It encourages me to keep going and also helps others to find a valuable show amidst the many podcasts that are out there. Until next time, this is Joshua Steinfeld with The Courageous Life.